0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, this is a follow-up to our episode on Louis de Guerre. But unlike most of our two-parters, these two episodes are intended to each stand on their own. So if you haven't listened to that one yet you should be fine in this one. Similarly, if you're like, I don't want to hear about Robert Cornelius, you could skip it. You're not going to miss anything from the Daguerre story. I hope you do listen, though. Um, I periodically see this image of Robert Cornelius circulate on Twitter where people discuss how hot they think this man was. And he does look mighty dashing in that image. (laughs) Uh, But the fact that this photo exists is in and of itself really pretty astonishing. Cornelius was smart and inventive in ways that do not often come up in brief social media mentions. Yes, he absolutely innovated in photography, but he also did some pretty interesting work with lighting fixtures of all things. So today we're going to cover how this man and some similarly minded colleagues in Philadelphia started experimenting with Daguerre's process as well as other aspects of his life.
1: Robert Cornelius was born March 1st, 1809, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His parents were Christian and Sarah Cornelius. Christian had emigrated to the U.S. from Amsterdam in 1783 and had started a lighting and chandelier business. As a kid, Robert attended private schools and showed a natural interest and proficiency in chemistry— Gerard Troost, who had been one of the founders of the American Philosophical Society and part of the New Harmony Indiana Owenite community that we covered during one of our live shows, was his chemistry teacher. As Robert started working in the family business in the early 1830s, Robert's chemistry studies served him well because he became an expert in metal plating in particular. In 1832,
0: at the age of 23, Robert married a young woman named Harriet Cumley, with whom he had eight children, three sons and five daughters. Those children were Robert, born roughly two years after the wedding, Sarah Ann, Charles, born in 1839, John, Constance, Harriet, Fanny, and Helen. And aside from those years of birth that I just mentioned, the exact dates of birth are unknown for the rest of the children.
1: By autumn of 1839, at a time when Robert had settled into both his career in lighting and his family life, information about Louis Daguerre's photo process was made available to the curious minds of the United States. This ran in multiple papers under the header, On Photography. In the National Gazette of Philadelphia, the article opened with, quote, "...the art of transferring the outline of an object or the shades of a picture to chemically prepared paper..." simply by the action of solar light, has attracted, especially in France and England, the attention of scientific men. It goes on to say that there have been a number of articles about it, and that now there's a Frenchman who, quote, has studied the art with success.
0: This article continues, quote, his explanation of the process is very simple and may be understood by anyone who has the taste and inclination to make an experiment. Although in its infancy we have seen specimens of drawing by the photographic mode perfect in outline and shades either landscapes flowers or figures may be copied with equal facility and as the occupation calls not for an artist's skill anyone may make the attempt
1: this article is lengthy and in spite of touting its own simplicity And it goes on to describe exactly how this all works, first with a general overview and then a step-by-step description. The general description reads, quote, "...when silver is dissolved in nitric acid, a colorless solution of lunar caustic is produced, which, when evaporated to dryness and exposed to light, becomes dark, the color depending on the intensity of the light and the time it has been exposed." Accordingly, paper besmeared with the solution is darkened, but if any object be put on it so as to prevent the transmission of light, the parts covered will remain white or be tinged according to the density of the object, hence the art of photography. The next several columns
0: of this article... Uh, which, again, it takes up many columns in the paper, are, as we said, dedicated to discussion of each step, which they lay out as, one, methods of preparing the paper, two, methods of taking the impressions, three, preservation of the impressions, and then there is an additional section titled Method of Taking Impressions in Which the Light and Shades Are Not Reversed. Basically, all of this, (laughs) uh, all images, for the most part, initially had been reversed of what you would actually see in reality, but people had worked out how to fix that problem. And all of this write-up was not prepped by Daguerre, but by a man named Andrew Pife, the vice president of the Society of Arts Edinburgh, and it is an edited version of a paper that he read at the Royal Society of Arts in Edinburgh.
1: When papers like the National Gazette and the American Daily Advertiser ran this story about Daguerre's work on October 15th, 1839... Philadelphia readership took notice, and it was not all good notice. There were readers who did not even believe the reporting. It just did not seem possible that an image could be captured that way. The article mentioned that it took a full hour to capture an image with the new process, and plenty of people thought that was ridiculous.
0: Yeah, you'll actually see some variations in that. Like, while this article said that there were other things that were like, no, like 30 minutes, you know, maybe less, maybe more. Uh, But for men like Cornelius, this was a really interesting topic. For one, he, like a lot of men of industry in Philadelphia, just was simply interested in emerging technologies. But for another, it offered a new potential business opportunity at a time when Robert Cornelius, like a lot of business owners, was trying to regain stable footing after the 1837 financial panic had caused a dip in revenue. But before we get to Cornelius' experiments with photography, we have to talk about another man who was very excited about the advertiser's story, and that was Joseph Saxton.
1: Saxton was a little bit older than Cornelius. He was born on March 22, 1799, in Huntingdon, Pennsylvania, He started working in his father's nail factory as a young boy, but he got tired of it. He had apprenticed with a clockmaker starting at the age of 12, and that became his career. He did well for himself in that job. It led to him making the belfry clock for Independence Hall when he was still a young man in his 20s. But though his education had been vocation-specific and related to clockworks, he was fascinated with all things scientific.
0: Saxton is usually credited with creating the first photograph made in the U.S. That was an image of the state arsenal in Philadelphia High School that was taken from a window high above the street at the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia, which was where Saxton worked. He was a constructor and curator of the Mint's weighing apparatus. And that was taken on October 16, 1839. That was only the day after that daguerreotype story had run in the papers. The various components needed for that photo were largely improvised by Saxton. A description of his first effort, written decades later, described what he used. Quote, a seedlitz powder box with a few flakes of iodine answered for a coating box, while a cigar box and burning glass were improvised for a camera. An iron spoon served to heat
1: mercury to develop the plate. But Saxton was just getting started. That first image tested the waters. He wanted to upgrade the materials he was using and refine it all, and for that, he turned to Robert Cornelius. This wasn't because Cornelius was also interested in photography. It was because of his expertise with metals that he had gained through his work in the lighting business. Saxton wanted Robert Cornelius to make silver-coated copper plates for him to use for his daguerreotypes, And in producing these plates, Cornelius found himself wanting to do his own imaging experiments.
0: And we're going to talk about that very famous and history-making photograph that came out of Cornelius's interest in photography in just a moment. But first, we will pause for a sponsor break. known exactly what date Cornelius took the photograph that became famous as the first photographic self-portrait. He took it behind the family lamp shop sometime in October or November, so still very soon after the information on Daguerre's process was shared in the press. The outdoor setup in the sun enabled him to minimize the needed exposure time. He simply set his camera, a box which was fitted with an opera glass, down on a stable surface, and then he took the lens cover off and he sat still for several minutes. And then he put the lens cover back on, and that was that. When he developed the photo using the daguerreotype process, he had the first self-portrait photo made in the U.S.
1: So this photo itself has a certain charm. It's the one we mentioned at the top of the episode that sometimes shows up on lists of historical hotties. Cornelius has tousled hair, he stares directly at the lens, and he does look a bit like he walked out of a historical romance novel. It's not the exact right time period, but I'm going to describe it as Mr. Darcy emerges from the mist.
0: That is 100% what it looks like to me as well. I think that's why everybody is like,
1: he's beautiful! (laughs) So he's not quite centered in the image. Uh, which shows him from his lower chest where his arms are crossed up to the top of his head. On the left side of the picture, the details are a little blurred. It looks like maybe overexposure. This photo was important because it proved that portraiture was completely possible, and that was something that detractors claimed was not realistic because of the length of time the subject had to sit still. And just a few weeks
0: after this photo was made, and having made additional ones, Cornelius gave a presentation on his photographic work on December 6, 1839, at the American Philosophical Society and the Franklin Institute. He showed his photos, and he talked about his process, and as a consequence, he very quickly began to gain a name for himself in this new field. The expertise that he was developing and sharing through such lectures also launched a new business venture for Cornelius. He partnered up with a man named Paul Beck Goddard, who was a doctor, a surgeon, and a chemist, to open a business in daguerreotype portraiture in 1840. In their studio on 8th Street, which you'll sometimes see written as 8th Street, depending on what source you look at, the pair advanced photography in a couple of different ways. One of the innovations which was achieved by Cornelius was the lighting setup. He attached a mirror to one of the windows, which was oriented to reflect off of another mirror that was positioned to light the subject. And he tempered the glare of the natural sunlight with another piece of glass, this one with a lilac film over it. This setup, which was all oriented so that the subject could look directly at the camera, set the standard for portrait photography. Cornelius also took photos, for example, of a street view in 1840, and that was advanced in that it did not flip the image the way most daguerreotypes did. He, once again, had used a mirror or another reflective surface, we don't know for certain, to create what looked like a true-to-life image.
1: Another innovation came from Goddard's tweaking of the chemical makeup of the plate preparation solution. And adding bromine to the iodine that was already used, Goddard shortened the needed exposure time significantly. With his formula, it took just seconds to capture the image. That was a huge step forward, and it seems that Cornelius and Goddard recognized the potential commercial advantage of their new process. It was one that they didn't initially share with their wider field of photography enthusiast's Instead, the business partners purchased all of the bromine along the East Coast that they could so that their faster process could not be replicated by other people. We should note as well that whether Goddard was the first to come up with this idea is really a matter of debate. European experimenters were proposing similar chemical tweaks to the process to speed things up at about the same time.
0: Yeah, that's one thing when you talk about photography history, there are almost always multiple people working on a process change at the same time. So you do find some um, conflicting literature about who did what or came up with what. A write-up in the papers about the Cornelius Portrait Studio noted that sometimes people were not so happy with their likenesses. It stated that Cornelius and his partner, quote, are now occupied at their establishment, corner of Ledge Alley and 8th Streets, Philadelphia, in taking likenesses, which are about 7 by 5 inches, in neat metallic gilt frames and are taken for $5. As the likenesses are true... The owners are very often too little flattered by the sun to be pleased with his painting. But as the French artist said to a friend of mine who complained that he had made him look like an assassin, the heliographist
1: might reply, sir, that is not my fault. But the same article, which appeared in the Botanico Medical Recorder of Columbus, Ohio, that also described how the process was pretty quick and easy for the sitter. Quote, when the T is seated in his chair and subjected to the light transmitted through the purple glass, you would suppose all Mr. Cornelius wished was to make the fellow look blue. But he will be relieved from such apprehension very soon, as it is only necessary to sit about a minute till the sun has, by its powerful pencil, transfixed every lineament of your features with all their beauties and blemishes and imperishable lines upon the plate of silver." Before the person, and about four feet in front of him, is a bureau, on the top of which is a mahogany tube or box, six or seven inches square and 18 inches long, open at both ends. In the end, next to the person to be represented is fixed a double-convex lens about the size of a common burning glass, but which the figure of the face and bust is diminished to the proper size for the plate of silver on which the likenesses are to be fixed." When the person is seated, the strong light is thrown from the mirrors through the purple plate upon the face and bust and reflected thence and through the lens and box and is transmitted to the plate of prepared silver fixed at the other end of the box. Half a minute or more is sufficient to trace imperishably the delineation on the plate. I feel like it took less time than it took to read that.
0: Yes, which is what made me laugh and why I wanted to include the whole thing, because I love that everyone keeps talking about, it's so simple, and then they take 35 sentences to describe this mm-hmm. simple thing. I'm like, is it, though? That write-up, though, was not alone in reassuring potential visitors to the Cornelia studio that the process of having your photograph taken was both easy and painless, in June of 1840, a brief article, a genuinely brief article, from the Philadelphia Chronicle was reprinted in the Tennessean, and that mentioned the studio being open and available for customers and touts, quote, "...nothing could possibly be more true than these representations of the human face divine, for they transfer to the plate the exact image of the sitters living as they rise." The mode, too, is as simple as the results are accurate. All you have to do is place yourself in an easy, well-cushioned chair, assume the position in which you desire to be perpetuated, and look steadfastly at a given object for the matter of half a minute. In your features, expression, everything connected with your countenance are caught and stamped with a vigor and solitude that are unsurpassable.
1: Also in June 1840 Cornelius ran his first advertisement for the studio which read quote Daguerreotype likenesses R Cornelius having completed his arrangements for producing miniatures by the daguerreotype process respectfully invites the public to his rooms northeast corner of 8th Street and Lodge Alley where specimens of the art can be seen. Miniatures from life or copies of busts, portraits, etc. will be made of the usual size or for medallions, breast pens, etc. The first customer was a man who had helped the studio get going, John McAllister Jr. He was an optician and had given Cornelius his camera lenses when he first started experimenting with photography. There's one thing that we should mention here. We keep
0: calling it the Cornelius Studio, although we have also said that Paul Beck Goddard was Robert Cornelius's partner. And he was, but he was a silent partner, assisting with the chemical makeup of their process, but then staying out of the day-to-day business. Uh, we should also note that their portrait studio was not the first in the U.S., although it was the first in Philadelphia. The distinction of the first in the country goes to Alexander Walcott and John Johnson, who opened a studio in New York City in March of 1840, just a couple of months before the Cornelius and Goddard venture.
1: In just a moment, we'll talk about the reputation for quality that Robert Cornelius gained for his photographic efforts, and we will cover that right after we hear from some of the sponsors that make Stuff You Missed in History class possible. <laughs>
0: The frames for photographs that were mentioned in the description that we read before the break may have been a way for Cornelius to integrate his family business into his new venture. Those frames were unusual in the world of early photography, and they may have been produced in the lamp factory. But over time, the metal frames were phased out, and Cornelius started using the same types of frames that other early photographers used, which was sort of a floral design leather casing that was much lighter than the brass frames that he had started with. But each of his portraits had a studio label on it that was metal that read Daguerreotype Miniatures by R. Cornelius, 8th Street, above Chestnut, Philadelphia.
1: The work Cornelius was doing was written up in various papers for its quality. In the Public Ledger of Philadelphia, the following appeared on March 26, 1840. Quote, This much-admired art seems to be rapidly approaching perfection. Among those who have been most successful in these attempts is Mr. Robert Cornelius of this city. We saw a likeness yesterday, which had been taken in just about 30 seconds' time. The operation is said to be by no means troublesome or tiresome. Mr. Cornelius has also taken a number of views of buildings in this city. Among them is one of the Mason Hall, St. John's Church in 13th Street, the Western Exchange Hotel, and the entire view of the city of Philadelphia. These views are publicly exposed in his saloon at the corner of Lodge Alley and 8th Street for the inspection of visitors.
0: And visitors did indeed visit the studio to see these images, and portrait bookings were popular with Philadelphia's elite. Remember that $5 was no small sum in 1840. But bookings were steady and had to be made a week in advance, with the caveat that an overcast day would be cause for cancellation. Cornelius' work became so well regarded as some of the best photography being done in the US that selections of his images were sent to France to show how much experimentation on this side of the Atlantic had innovated the entire field. In
1: 1841, Cornelius moved to a new location in Market Street because it offered better lighting. This meant he didn't usually have to cancel appointments if it was overcast. He seemed to be succeeding in his business. The paper described him as being run down with his customers. That means like overrun, not that, the, not that the business looked shabby. And this was busy enough to have opened a second studio. He decided to close his portrait business just a couple of years after it opened. And that shift away from
0: photography wasn't necessarily because portrait business was lagging, although it is a little bit unclear how profitable it actually was, even with that high price. But Cornelius was also eager to work on alternative fuels for lighting. In the early 1840s, whale oil was still the most common fuel for lighting a lamp. Gaslight had been introduced several decades earlier, and it was growing in both accessibility and popularity, but it had not become the standard. And Robert Cornelius saw an opportunity to do for lamplight what he had done for photography by moving it forward.
1: He invented a device called a solar lamp. This isn't quite what you may think of when you think about technologies that are today labeled as solar. It wasn't solar-powered. It was just brighter than other lamps, and it did have a different fuel source than other lamps.
0: Cornelius, who, as we have said, worked in the lamp and chandelier industry his whole career, applied for a patent on this lamp, which had a rounded light deflector like other solar lamps. But his also had way more options for fuel than other lamps of the day. His solar lamp worked with lard oil, far less expensive than whale oil. And that was not all. You could put solid lard in it as a fuel to burn. And in a pinch, you could even use grease leftovers from cooking. Uh, If you want to see a picture of this, the National Museum of American History has one in its collection, and you can find pictures of it online.
1: During his first years away from running the portrait studio, Cornelius also still took photos on occasion, but that waned over time. Maybe one of the reasons that Robert Cornelius didn't pursue his photography as more of a hobby after 1843 was that there were lots of other such studios opening up all around the city. Even as early as 1840, he had to compete with a studio that opened right across the street from his shop that was run by J.E. Watson. By 1843, there were so many others. Additionally, his family lighting business, Cornelius & Company, had become really successful. That took up a lot of his time. Yeah, I think I read one
0: statistic that by 1843, there were 10 photography studios, which doesn't sound like that big a number, but that was still just, you know, a few years after <laughs> after this whole thing had started, so it had grown quite quickly. Cornelius, obviously, was a man of insight. And just as he had seen the potential of the daguerreotype and how it could be used, he was also always working on new approaches to lighting, even when those approaches endangered his previous inventions and made them obsolete. Because of that desire to innovate, he actually introduced the first kerosene lamp in 1855. The American Gaslight Gallery has a Cornelius kerosene lamp in its collection.
1: But though he was first to figure out a kerosene lighting apparatus, Cornelius did not corner that market. Another device by a different inventor, Johann Stuber, enabled customers to keep their existing oil lamps. Stuber's invention was an attachment burner that converted oil lamps to kerosene fuel. This is a lot more economical option than replacing all of the oil lamps in your house, so buyers typically chose that.
0: Cornelius tried to keep up with the kerosene market by inventing his own conversion burner for using on existing oil lamps, but he was just kind of too slow. He was behind the trend at that point, and he couldn't regain market share. In
1: 1877, after having changed the name from Cornelius and Company to Cornelius and Baker to Cornelius and Sons over the years, Robert Cornelius retired. After that, he spent most of his time at his country house north of Frankfort, Pennsylvania. He had purchased that in the early 1850s. He still had the urge to experiment, although once he left the lamp business, this was gardening. Yeah, he
0: apparently did some seed experimentation, although I did not find much documentation on it or information. Cornelius died at his country house on August 10th, 1893, at the age of 84, so he lived for quite a while after retirement. He was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. And when his obituary ran in the American Journal of Photography, it was right above an article written by another inventor who would become much more famous. That article was titled The Action of the Eye, and it was written
1: by Nikola Tesla. Today, Cornelius's famous selfie is part of the collection of the Library of Congress it's appeared in the exhibits American Treasures of the Library of Congress and Not an Ostrich and Other Images from America's Library. That was in 2018. It was also included in the book Gathering History, the Marion S. Carson Collection of Americana, in 1999, and then in the ebook Great Photographs from the Library of Congress in 2013. You can also find it online at Library of Congress, loc.gov. Also, it'll be on our social media. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's also just easy to find. If you do an internet search for Robert Cornelius, it's gonna come up. (laughs) Uh, The studio that Cornelius had had briefly in Philadelphia is now called out by a historical marker from the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission, which reads, quote, Robert Cornelius, the metallurgist and brass founder, opened one of the world's first photographic studios here in the spring of 1840. His collaboration with chemist Paul Beck Goddard in successful experiments to reduce exposure times made it possible to use the camera in portraiture.
1: Although he has name recognition in Philadelphia and in photography circles, there's a fresh effort now to make sure that the images Cornelius made in those early days of daguerreotype experimentation are preserved. In 2017, an article appeared in the online publication Hidden City Exploring Philadelphia's Urban Landscape. The write-up features a woman named Rachel Wetzel, who's a photograph conservator for the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts. And Wetzel is on a mission to track down all of the Cornelius daguerreotypes she can and ensure that they're preserved.
0: That effort has gotten a financial boost in the time since that article appeared. The National Endowment for the Humanities gave funding for a two-year research project with the goal of documenting all Cornelius portraits. According to the Robert Cornelius Daguerreotype Project Facebook page, which is part of this effort, quote, this project began as a collaborative scientific study between Rachel Wetzel of the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts and Adrian Lundgren of the Library of Congress. Those two conservators now have a team to research historical cleaners on daguerreotype images. Today, it is known that 54 of Cornelius's portraits survive. And now, you know, when you look and say, wow, you are handsome, (laughs) that that is the story of Robert Cornelius. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Do you have some listener mail for us? I do.
0: It is also a little bit photography related because it is about our recent episode on Wilson A. Bentley who photographed all of those beautiful snowflakes. This is from our listener, Marin who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm a longtime listener of the show and really enjoyed your episode on Wilson A. Bentley. Growing up every December, my mom would wrap up 25 books, and each night leading up to Christmas, my brother and I would alternate, picking out one to unwrap and read. I love this tradition, and I think everyone should adopt it, including myself. Marin goes on, this tradition functioned as our family's advent calendar and also prevented my brother and I from nagging my mom to unwrap gifts before Christmas. It was a really fun tradition as each year there was one to two new books and my brother and I like to try to pick out our old favorites by their shapes. One of my favorites of these books was actually about Wilson Bentley. It's called Snowflake Bentley by Jacqueline Briggs Martin. It looks like it may be out of print now, and it's been several years since I have read it, but I remember it being a charming story and having excellent illustrations of Bentley's snow crystals. Being literature lovers, I thought you would enjoy my story and the book. Thank you for all the hard work you put into the show. Yours, Marin. P.S. I have included a festive picture of my cat, Mazzie. Mazzie is a tortie, (laughs) which I love, uh, because they are usually little feline spitfires. But also, Marin, thank you, because I actually meant to mention that book, at least in the episode, and neglected to. You can still get it, at least on the secondhand book market. I think
1: if you're really eager to get it, you could probably get your hands on a copy somehow. Yeah, we had a lot of people mention it, uh, like on Facebook comments and tweets and things. Yep, it's
0: cute as pie. Um, and it is very cool, and there is there are very pretty illustrations. So, um, thank you for that reminder that we should mention it. Uh, I'm still busy paging through. Bentley's book on snowflakes that he wrote because it has so many great photographs in it and I just adore it so if you haven't looked at that that is also great Uh, thank you again for writing us if you would like to do so you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com you can also find us on social media as Missed in History which Tracy just mentioned Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast if you haven't gotten around to it yet that is so easy to do you can do it on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your
1: favorite podcasts